Well, we cruised past Christmas <clears throat> and we entered this new year. And at that time, we started a five-part series of messages about some of the wonderful gifts that Jesus Christ offers to us. These gifts can make such a difference in your life. If, and they will comprise an offer that you and I cannot refuse. We've considered Jesus' offer of not just new life, which is awesome, but also a life of enthusiasm, you know, a life of purpose, a life of forgiveness. And today we bring this series to a close by examining something we all desperately need, especially in this troubled world we live in today. And again, talking about hope. That's the third time, I think, in the last uh, two months that hope has appeared as our major focus. And Frankly, that's not accidental. There's never been a time like this that I've known in my life. And we need some hope. I know I do. I hope you, you understand that as well. And so we bring this series to a close examining a very particular aspect of our life. What is there about our lives that has caused us, so many of us, to, whether young or old, doesn't matter, to lose hope? The word hope appears 185 times in the Bible. And one of those times is Proverbs 29, 18, where the King James translates it a little differently, but I'm going to use the King James Version. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Without vision, there's no, we don't have any hope. And as a result, then life doesn't become very meaningful where there's no vision or if our vision for the future appears uh, to have been completely destroyed, then all that is left is discouragement and we no longer see where life is heading and we don't have a sense of direction. Everything seems hopeless. You listen to the news, you watch television, you hear what's going on around the world and it's just not edifying or encouraging. As one writer put it, when there's no hope for the future, there's no power in the present. And this describes the thinking of two people I want to introduce to you today. Two people who were hopeful one moment and then suddenly a tragic event occurred and, and they lost their hope. Luke chapter 24 verses 13 and 14 introduces these two individuals. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, we set the stage for their conversation last week. What had happened was that Jesus of Nazareth had been executed on a Roman cross. And verse 21 of Luke 24 records their reaction to this horrible tragedy. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to restore and redeem Israel. But no, their hope had been crucified. Their hope had been buried with Jesus in that tomb. And now their conversation is kind of negative and their countenance has fallen and they're heading in the opposite direction from where Jerusalem was. But then suddenly and miraculously, Jesus joins them as they walk along. Maybe it was at a fork in the road and suddenly Jesus was there and they just kind of, their pathways converged. We don't know. 
What we do know from text, the text, though, is that they didn't recognize him. They didn't know it was Jesus because he had deliberately concealed his identity. Verse 16 says that they were kept from recognizing him. But the next several moments, walking along with the resurrected Christ is going to completely transform their attitudes towards life. And even more, it's going to give them power to move forward into the future. I want you to see three events that opened up hope for these two men. And I want you to remember that Jesus Christ offers the same kind of hope to you and me right now. Always has, he always will. The first event that led to a restored hope took place when he opened the scriptures. When he opened the Bible. Verse 23, he said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, I sense he's gentle. I don't think he's scolding these discouraged men necessarily, but I think he's serious about what they are overlooking. He kind of chastised them. You guys are not paying attention to the Scriptures, the Old Testament that they had, the Torah. They predicted all these things happening. And he said, have you guys not read, this is Kentucky translation, by the way. Have you guys not read Isaiah 53 that said that the Messiah would be led like a sheep to the slaughter and our sins be laid on him? Have you not read that? Did you not read what David said in Psalms 22, that my hands and my feet were going to be pierced? What do you think Psalm 126 was all about when it said the Messiah would not be abandoned to the grave? And verse 27 tells us, hear this, beginning with Moses, And all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. He went back to to history and theology and, and all this 101. Now, one of the ways that Jesus can offer you and me hope today, and for that even beyond today, which I know we're going to need, is through a study of the scriptures. It's through connection on a daily basis with God's word. There's a song the church used to sing on a regular basis. It's called, He Lives. And it asks a question. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. And we are told over and over and over again. That's a great song, by the way. But our hope is based on something more than just a warm feeling that Jesus lives in our heart. I mean, that's good. Our hope is based more, though, because if your hope is only based on feeling and emotion, then it's going to be shattered and disappointed every time there's a tragedy, every time there's a difficulty, every time something comes crashing down in your life and you just don't feel close to Jesus, then you'll be kind of discouraged and in despair. I think that's kind of what the church has gone through, ours and all churches, in the last couple of years. It's been a tough time for the kingdom here on earth because we, we've struggled. I think we've done well. I think God has blessed us with the willingness to to have the staying power and and to go through the things we need to do, maybe if they're not comfortable or we don't like them. But I think that, you know, if our faith is going to survive, then our hope's got to be based on solid biblical and intellectual foundation. Christianity is a reasonable faith. Listen to this passage in Romans 15.4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance 
and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. A famous atheist was once asked why so many Christian people were afraid of her. And she replied, well, I'll tell you why some Christians are afraid of me. I'm going to quote her statement. They are not sure that what they say they believe is true, because if they were, I wouldn't be a threat to them at all. And you know what? She's right. Too many Christians have kind of an inferiority complex about our faith. They're fearful that Christianity will not hold up in a world of intellectual scrutiny. And when they're hoping Christ is challenged, when you kind of called on the carpet a little bit, then it's intimidating. But this should not be, and here's why. The vast majority of individuals who oppose Christianity do not do so on the basis of intellectual arguments against it. Rather, they have personal objections against it. They just don't like the idea of any authority or accountability over their lives. They hate the idea of absolute truth. They want to control their universe. I read of a young man who agreed to mow his neighbor's grass for $10. And so he paid the $10, and he glanced out the window a while later, and he saw this young man sitting under a tree uh, drinking a pop while some smaller, younger boy was mowing the grass. And concerned about the quality of the work that was going on, and whenever he walked out to the tree there, and I said, well, how, how could this job be done by two people for just 10 bucks? And the guy said, well, I'm paying him $11 to do it. It's worth a dollar to me to just be the boss. Now, <laughs> people reject Jesus Christ because they want to be the boss. That's simple. I mean, it just makes perfect sense if you look at our society today. It's not very smart. And it's going to end in all kinds of problems for you. It's going to be costly. But for a short period of time, we think we're in charge of our own lives. And at least, at least we think we are as we indulge in the so-called pleasures of this world and do whatever we want to do. But Christians, we never need to apologize to anybody for our hope. Our belief is based on the historical fact that Jesus came back from that grave. And the more you read the Bible, the more our hope is verified, the more evidence you have to support your hope. That's why it's so important to be in the Scriptures. Did you know that some of the most brilliant people in all the world were Christians? The Apostle Paul and Luke, writer of the Gospel, you know, we're, these were excellent historians. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, all of these were well-educated uh, scholars and teachers. Jonathan Edwards, who started what was called the Great Awakening, was the president of Princeton University. Alexander Campbell, one of the founders of the independent New Testament Christian church movement of which we are a part after all these years, was said to be by Andrew Jackson. He thought that Campbell was the smartest man he'd ever met. C.S. Lewis was a scholarly Oxford University professor agnostic, but an apologetic study of the Bible led C.S. Lewis to a belief in Jesus Christ. Even though he confessed, I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. That might describe some of us. Why is that though? Because he regarded so many Christian people as shallow thinkers. So C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. 
It's required reading. I don't think you're going to get a copy when you get to heaven because you won't be needing that. You can ask Jesus himself. But it's an excellent book. Some of you have read this. And this idea he wrote about all this time defending the integrity of Scripture. And that book led thousands of thinking people to come to know Jesus Christ. And I remind you all of this so that in those moments when hope is challenged and things look dark and dreary, we know what to do. We open the Scriptures and we develop a solid intellectual foundation, a base, support for our faith. Or, in the words of 1 Peter 3.15, it says it much better, but in your hearts you set apart Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But not only do these two guys have the scriptures open to them, that's, that's so, so needs to think about Jesus doing this. But the second event that led to restored hope took place when they opened their homes to Jesus. They opened their homes to Jesus. Verse 28. As they approached the village, the village of Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, they were going that direction. Jesus acted as if he were going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. Now, now it would be rare for us to invite a stranger in to, to eat with us. We might invite a man to visit, but I want to keep my donuts to myself. You know. But I mean, you know. This is rare. It's rare for us to invite anybody into our homes at all in these nervous times we're having today. But on that day in the village of Emmaus, an amazing event took place. Listen to verse 30 and see if you notice something different. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now, you notice anything odd about that? Here was Jesus... <clears throat> a guest in this home, but he takes charge. Very clearly, Jesus is guiding what is happening in this home. If you and I were to invite somebody in our home, well, we would preside at our table. But here is Jesus breaking bread, Jesus giving thanks, Jesus passing it out around the table. And you know what that tells me? Our Lord and Savior is never satisfied being a guest in our lives. He wants to be the host. And if you're here today, maybe some of you be watching this on television, and you're not a Christian, you know, I really want to speak to you directly. Maybe you're just hanging around the fringe of Christianity, but you need to know that Jesus wants to take charge of your life. He wants you off the throne. He wants to be on it. He's not satisfied with your respect of him as a mere intellectual character in history. John 5, 39, in, in this passage, Jesus says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Well, these are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus wants a personal, daily relationship with us, moment by moment. He's not satisfied with an occasional visit to church at Christmas or Easter. He wants to direct every day of our lives, and He wants to be the Lord 
of your entertainment, of your finances, of your language, of your marriage, of your habits, of your home life, everything. And if our hope is ever going to be able to sustain us through hard times, Jesus has got to be placed back on the throne and be Lord of all. These two men invited Jesus into their home. He, took, he just took it over. Their lives would never be the same again, though. Suddenly, he was not just a Messiah that had been promised in, the, in an old book. And opening our homes and hearts to him will allow Jesus to be our personal Savior, but also our daily companion. That's why we sing a song, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, before I share this last point, though, I want to always, uh, I always want to put a plug in about our kids. This final, this final point is important, but before you go there, I want to talk to parents of young children. And if you want to transfer your faith, if it's your goal to reproduce yourselves in your faith in your children, then it's essential you've got to open your home to Jesus Christ. It's not just a matter of sending your kids to our, our wonderful Christian kids' ministry. I mean, that's awesome, but it's not enough. That's just once a week. It's built around making Jesus a reality every day in your home by making your home a training ground for the gospel. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen verse 20, 18 through 21 says, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. These are children, instructions to the children of Israel. You teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. See, in short, if you want to share eternity with your children, you begin while they're little to open up your home to Jesus. Make your home a seminary where you can come to know Jesus Christ. But then the third thing that happened along the road to Emmaus was this. Number three, they opened their eyes and they found a solid basis for their faith. Their eyes were open. Look again at verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now, why all of a sudden? Apparently, Jesus had kept them from knowing who he was. How he did it, we don't know, uh, but they didn't, know, they didn't know this was Jesus. If you just saw the leader of their, 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 their little group of disciples executed on a Roman cross, you wouldn't be looking to bump into him on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know that it was him. But then all of a sudden now, Something changed. Now, now, some people think that when Jesus bowed his head and prayed, they recognized having heard him pray over meals before. That's how they did it. But I don't think so. This passage says clearly it was not until he handed them the bread that their eyes were open to his identity. And I think what it was, they saw the nail prints in his hands. And suddenly it dawned on them, this was the crucified Jesus and he'd come back from the grave. Now, upon that revelation to them, 
the Bible says he disappeared from their sight. And there, there they are. According to verse 32, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And verse 33 says, tells us that even though it was nighttime, and even though it was seven miles all the way back to Jerusalem, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, those with him assembled together, and they say, saying to them, it is true, the Lord has risen. And verse 35 says, then the two told what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Oh, friends, what a blessed moment it is in our lives when, when our eyes are opened. Amen. Little boy asked his uncle if he would come out and look at the little litter of puppies that he had out in the barn, and his uncle was an atheist. And the little boy said, Uncle, these are atheist puppies. And the uncle was just really proud of, this, of his influence on this little boy. And, and when he came back a week later, the young boy said, oh, come out and see the puppies. They're Christian puppies now. <laughs> and the uncle said, well, I thought they were atheistic puppies. He said, they were, but now their eyes are open. <laughs> That's cute. It doesn't happen that way very often, but anyway. Oh, Psalm 146.5 says this, though. Blessed is he whose hope or help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord his God. We need to open our eyes. Every single goal that you and I have in life is temporary. Our team loses. I'm in grief over that after yesterday. Our business fails. Our bodies age. I know you're too tired and old to say amen to that. Amen. Children move on. Mates die. But only and only our hope, our hope in Jesus is eternal. It's an eternal hope. It sustains us no matter what's going on around us or in us, beneath us or above us. And this is what Jesus Christ offers to us. He conquered the grave, and he promised that we can too. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can eliminate the Christian's hope. I want to pray with you, and I'll and extend an invitation. We don't always, sometimes we think we're preaching to the choir, and most of the time I think that's true. But I think it's time every now and then for us to just say, you know what, have I really accepted all this? Have I really made a decision to follow Jesus? We sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. But have you really done that? I just want to pray for a moment as we close. Heavenly Father, we have given our church so very much. The people of this congregation are very special people. And Lord, I would ask that you would help me and help the leaders of this church to always open the door, never stand in the way, never hinder anyone from coming to you. My prayer, Father, is that the words that you're preached from your book, it's not our book, it's yours, that we would heed them and we would, we would talk about them and, and chew on them a little bit and, and imagine what the implications are for our lives if we would follow the words of this book and embrace the Lord of this book.
and the Lord of all. And if there's anyone here, Father, that's been playing kind of fast and loose with this whole thing called Christianity, my prayer is, is that, that you will just speak to their hearts, that you will just bring them to a moment of, of awareness. The same way these two guys on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were opened and they understood and their grief vanished. <laughs> they had a new purpose again. They got all, all the things we've been talking about in the service series. You know, they, they, they had all this back again. They hurried back to share. They were excited. They were, cause, cause Jesus is real. He's not just some figment of somebody's imagination. And you know that, but Father, help us know that. And if there be any of us here today that really need to just take a new look at this and have a fresh conversation with you, I pray that you will nudge them and give them the willingness to do that. And Lord, we love you. We thank you. We know that nothing's going to happen to our lives. Nothing's going to go along. But what? You're not going to be there to guide us through it one way or the other. If we live, we live unto you. If we die, we die unto you. Help us, Father, though, recognize we've got examples to set for the next generation. And a lot of young people are watching us. A lot of kids that are trying to make sense of this goofy world. So help us, Father, as they did, as these guys in the Bible did. Help us to make our homes a sanctuary where you are welcome and where conversations are about you and not about the sports in the world or all the problems in Washington. Help us, Father, take our eyes off this world and lift our eyes above to you. And then a lot of things are going to change. And we, we, we believe it. We thank you for it, but we do ask for it. And I pray that there'll be some today that will go home. Maybe, maybe before they leave here today, they're going to want to have a little chat. And Lord, help us to be available to them and encourage them. Help our church be consistent in our teaching and preaching and ministry so that there's a solid biblical ground here on this hill that's available for people to come from outside to learn about you. And we love you, Father. We thank you for walking with us on our own road to Emmaus and then opening our eyes in the process. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.